Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Hawley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Eleanor Wachtel, and this is Writers and Company from the Archives. Today, a look back at English novelist Elizabeth Jane Howard. She died 10 years ago. Famous for the Cazalet Chronicles and a dozen other books, she turned to her own life in her memoir, Slipstream. When Elizabeth Jane Howard died in January 2014, age 90, her stepson, the novelist Martin Amos, wrote an eloquent tribute to her. At a crucial time in his own life, Howard was married to his father, Kingsley, and she encouraged Martin to read and pursue his studies. As a result, he got a first at Oxford. Elizabeth Jane Howard was born in London in 1923 into an upper-middle-class family, complete with chauffeur, nanny, parlor-maid, and so on. But because she was a girl, her education was somewhat haphazard. For a while, she was taught Greek, Latin, and philosophy from a wonderful governess who appeared transformed in her fiction. But Elizabeth felt she never learnt enough, and later in life she said, Whenever any man fell in love with me, he always made me a list of books to read. I've never caught up with the lists. Well, there must have been a lot of lists, because there were certainly a lot of men who fell in love with the stunningly beautiful Howard. She worked as an actress and model before she became a writer. She was married when she was just 19 to an older man, Peter Scott, the son of the Antarctic explorer Captain Robert Falcon Scott, who died near the South Pole in 1912. They had a daughter, Nicola, whom Howard left in the care of others when the marriage ended. Pursuing a career and love, she was involved with writers such as Cyril Connolly, Cecil Day-Lewis, Romain Gary, Arthur Kessler, Kenneth Tynan, and Laurie Lee. In 1962, she met the man who became her third husband, Kingsley Amos. They were together for the next 18 years. Their relationship has been widely discussed by Amos himself, by his son from a previous marriage, Martin Amos, and by Amos's biographers. In her own 2002 memoir, Slipstream, Elizabeth Jane Howard gave her side of the story for the first time. Back in 1950, Elizabeth Jane Howard published her first novel, The Beautiful Visit. She followed it with a number of novels and film scripts, and then wrote four books about three generations of the Cazalet family from 1937 to 1947. This account of England during the Second World War on the home front became enormously popular. Part of the Cazalet Chronicles was made into a BBC television series. Then, in 1999, Howard wrote a surprising novel about late love, about an older woman who falls for a con artist. Falling, as Elizabeth Jane Howard revealed in her memoir, was essentially autobiographical. Elizabeth Jane Howard was an accomplished and candid writer. She spoke to me from the CBC's London studio in 2003. Just a note, this conversation includes some reference to sexual abuse. In the preface to your memoir, Slipstream, you you write that an autobiography seems to you in a way like a household book of accounts. What has been acquired? To what purpose it's been put? If you paid too much for it, did it teach you anything? And it's a kind of a neat way of reviewing one's own life, but maybe a, a bit exacting. Why, why such scrutiny? Why undertake that kind of a reckoning? Well, I think because I partly I feel I've made rather a mess of my life, and uh, I wanted to examine that and sometimes and see whether it was as bad a mess as I had thought or whether I could have done better with X, Y, or Z, and how much it affected me, and had I learned things. And I, it was quite an interesting exercise. I don't think I would have started it without being a bit exacting. And and just to cut to the chase, do you think you made as big a mess of it as you thought originally? <laughs> I think 
it's very odd that in some ways absolutely is big in other ways I realize that I have changed and I have learned things so it hasn't been a total washout (laughs) I'm glad to say Although, as as memoirs go, Slipstream is fairly self-critical, and and you're right, speaking as a a very slow learner, uh, I I feel as though I have lived most of my life in the slipstream of experience. Why slipstream? Well, because I think that's part of being a slow learner, that you don't realize what you've learned or how you've experienced something until afterwards. And that's one of was one of my problems, and I kept making the same mistakes because the message didn't get to me. So I feel I very much have lived in the slipstream of my own experience, which is part of being a very slow learner. I don't know if it's good or bad, but it's true. And I think it's there's no point at all in writing a, a memoir or an autobiography unless you at least try to be scrupulously honest. Try, you know. I'm very tired of the autobiography where the person is bending over backwards to be very sort of charming and entertaining and... Ingratiating uh, Ingratiating, or yes, yeah. toading, really, and never saying... I mean, they'd say I have a hot temper. They'd never say I'm a bloody bore in the mornings or something. They'd say I've got rather a hot temper, you know, that kind of... There are a few sort of acceptable faults that you're allowed to have, and they have them. Well, I don't. I, I was used to be a martyr and a toady and... You know, all kinds of things. Uh, and I think you should say that that's how you are, because it's only a part of you. It's you also talk thing. about having what you regard as a very prolonged adolescence. Yes, I think people, I do think people have a curious view of that adolescence is a finite state. You know, they sort of see it as starting at perhaps at 13, and by the time you're 19, you're probably through it. Well, I, I think an awful lot of people are adolescent at the age of 50. They don't perhaps recognise it, but they are. They go on behaving like adolescents do, i.e. things happen to them and they're not really responsible for those things. They're victims or they're, you know, unlucky, whatever. And I, I, I certainly, I've spent a long time being an adolescent. Very tiresome for my friends. <laughs> Your memoir features uh, a cast of characters. It's, it's quite a, an extensive list, including some well-known names. But it begins simply in the London of your early childhood in Kensington. Yes. I wonder, could you read from the opening of Slipstream? All right. The first thing I can remember is a dream. I dreamed I was in St Mary Abbott's church after my brother's christening. There was a tea party in the church with people standing about holding cups of tea. I was given a large plate. I needed both hands to carry it and told to hand it round to everyone. The plate was covered by small rectangular sponge cakes with white icing, each one decorated with a crystallised violet. I longed for one, but was told I must wait until everyone had been offered the plate. Some people refused, and I began to hope that there would be one left for me, but when I approached a large lady with a brown fur round her neck, she smiled kindly and took the last cake. The disappointment still pricked my eyes when I woke up. I must have been between two and a half and three years old when I dreamed this, and it must have been the time when my parents moved from the first-floor flat in Clanricard Gardens to a small house in Bedford Gardens, also in Kensington. I have no memory of the flat, but we stayed in Bedford Gardens until I was six or seven, so I can remember some small pieces from those years. The house was part of a terrace at the Church Street end of Bedford Gardens, flat-fronted, built of brick with pretty windows and steps leading up to the front door. There was a very small front garden in which large purple iris grew. The nursery was on the top floor, the day nursery in the front and a smaller night nursery at the back. From that back window there was a sea of chimney pots and I used to imagine that they were the funnels of large ships waiting to take me away. I remember little of the rest of the house. In those days, middle-class children lived in their nursery quarters and less sent for at tea-time. The days were filled with long walks in Kensington Gardens, when nannies would meet with thermos flasks of bovril and marie biscuits, while we were enjoined to play not too far from them. Sometimes we walked to the round pond, and I was allowed to feed bread to the ducks. I remember clearly watching a horde of little ragged children with a baby in a pram fishing for sticklebacks that they put into jam jars. I longed to be with them, to have bare legs and no overcoat, no gaiters with all their buttons, and to fish with them. 
Once I managed to elude Nanny and join them, but she dragged me away. Those children are not your friends. They are, I wept. But I remember thinking afterwards that they probably wouldn't have wanted me as a friend. Nanny Wilshire loomed far larger in my life than either of my parents. She wore crackling aprons, smelt alternately of licorice or pear drops, and was given to sudden rages. She told me that if I swallowed pieces of wool or cotton, they'd join together, and when long enough, wind themselves round my heart and kill me. Her justice, like Portia's mercy, was an indiscriminate affair. It dropped incomprehensibly from the skies. It ambushed me like a jaguar, and I endured it dazed with fear and grievance. Once she shut me in the linen cupboard, dark, hot, and unbelievably frightening, because my brother Robin had cut himself on a tin motor-car when I was alone in the nursery with him. I remember shrieking with terror and pulling down all the sheets and pillowcases I could reach and stamping on them. When my noise and the damage were apparent to her, she released me, and I learned my first lesson. Robin was younger, infinitely more attractive, and a boy. In fact, youth, beauty, and his sex were unmistakable advantages, and beside him I felt inferior in each respect. I don't think scenes of the linen-covered nature ever reached my mother's ears. Trying now to remember my parents at that time, I am left with fragments, how they smelt, my mother of china tea and sweet hay, my father of lavender water and the Lebanon cedar with which his clothes chest and wardrobe were lined, and predominating tobacco. They both smoked, as indeed did practically all their friends. My mother had thick curly hair, but it was mostly grey which worried me, as I'd noticed that grey hair led to white, and white-haired people were so old that they might die at any minute. I'd been taught that when people died they went to heaven, but I discovered as quickly that there was no possibility of going there alive. So if my mother died, I'd have to die too to be with her. This uncomfortable choice haunted me at increasing intervals for years. Elizabeth Jane Howard reading from the opening of her memoir, Slipstream. I'd like to to begin with your mother because your relationship with her was, was so difficult, so puzzling, and you, you once said it's taken you nearly all your life to get over it. Your mother was an accomplished woman. She'd been a dancer in the corps de ballet of uh, Diaghilev's Ballet Russe. Why do you think she was so hard on you? Well, she once told a cousin of mine that she didn't, she'd never liked little girls, and then she turned to the cousin and said, I don't mean you, Claire, of course. Um, I think she really didn't like little girls very much, and she had a daughter a year before me, whom she also had called Jane, who died. And I think she probably didn't want to get pregnant again so soon, or if she did, have a son. And she did get pregnant, and it was another daughter. So I think I had a bad start in that way. I think she was the least loved in her family of four siblings. She was the one that her, her mother didn't care for. So you could say it's well, not, not genetic, but hereditary, this attitude. And I think she suffered from that too. But certainly she made me feel not good enough in almost every respect, all my life. And it was interesting the other day that um, my brother was asked by a journalist what he thought of my mother's attitude to me. And he said, well, I remember saying one day to our mother, Jane, um, well, she does write beautifully now, I just read one of her novels. And his mother snapped. He said, it's a pity she's got nothing to write about. So it went on all her life. She didn't really like me very much. And this was very difficult for me because I wanted her to. In fact, more than normally understandably wanting her to, I mean, you, you write that you felt what you describe as a desperate love for your mother that was unrequited and that the family thought was morbid. I mean, do you think that your need for her was in, was in any way excessive? Well, it probably became excessive because I think in the same way that if you don't uh, if you're hungry and nobody feeds you, you starve. And as you starve, you get more ravenous and frantic. And I think I was starved of her love, and so it became rather frantic, really, not getting anywhere with it. And it must have been awful for her, because, when I think about it, because I think she must have been aware of it and felt guilty about it. But love isn't something you can reason yourself into, is it, really? What, what do you think was her most damaging influence when, when you talk about... I think uh, always putting me down, really, and, also, and making my 
making me feel disgusting. My body was disgusting. Everything to do with the body, to her, was 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 revolting and not mentioned or talked about. Or this didn't seem to apply to again to men or boys, but it, it did to women. She didn't like them, and she made me feel very plain and very clumsy. She tried to teach me dancing, and I was hopeless at it. And I was very bad at learning things from her because I was rather afraid of her, and was afraid I wouldn't please her, which of course meant that I displeased her more than I would have been if I'd been a bit more indifferent, I suppose. I think most children want their mothers to love them. I don't think there's anything unusual about that. Not at all, no. And I think that it is assumed that all mothers do love their children, and I think that is unusual. I, I think that sometimes they don't. Well, it's interesting when you say that your mother said it's too bad you didn't have anything to write about. Of course, for a long time, one of the things you wrote about were mothers who behaved badly. <laughs> she wouldn't have liked that. I mean, the, the other thing she said when I told her I was going to leave my first husband and I wanted to be a writer, she said, you know, what on earth makes you feel that anybody will ever publish anything that you write? And I felt, you were, who, what indeed? I mean, I felt she was probably quite right about that because I was fairly conditioned to feeling that I wasn't much good at anything, really. It's almost like the, uh, the the flip side of the unconditional love is like unconditional disapproval. It is a bit like that, isn't it? Yes. Well, certainly, I think if you don't love a child, they can be very tiresome people, you know, because children are exhausting in varying ways depending on their age, and you can cope with this because you love them. I mean, if you don't love them or don't love children at least as much as a good teacher would at a school, then you're going to have a really bad time because they're their endless curiosity, their not being able to do things and wanting to learn to do them is very tiring sometimes. Much later, after your father had left your mother and you had long at least tried to leave her influence, you mm. you, you came to see her quite differently and, and she was... Yes, I felt extremely sorry for her. I, I would not have been a woman in her generation. I mean, I'm very grateful not to have been born when she was because... It was an age where, in her sort of situation, she had to choose between her career and marriage. Absolutely. She had no... It, there was no question of it. She had to stop dancing if she married my father. That was the decree from both families. And she obeyed it. But I think she never really got over it because I think marriage was not satisfactory to her, really. She married somebody who was deeply unsuitable to her in many ways. And uh, she did love dancing and was very good at it. So it seems to me that she made the wrong choice and suffered for the rest of her life about it, really. She had nothing to do, you see. People in those days, that kind of woman, they didn't do the cooking. They had cooks. They didn't clean their houses. They had servants. They weren't allowed to work. They could do a bit of charity work. They didn't look after their children. They were nannies. So they had a sort of vicarious, second-hand experience of life all the time, which I think must have been infinitely tedious. I would have hated it. And she did try to... She taught herself instruments, she taught herself languages. She made efforts all the time to occupy her time and her mind. But I think she was very lonely and very frustrated. And that doesn't... Those sort of chronic feelings don't do people any good. They don't come out of them better. I think she felt awful about not loving me. I, I'm sure it was difficult for her, you know. I don't. I see her I'm much more as a person. I think the trouble is we always see our parents only in, in, in the relationship to us, their relationship to us, which is of being a parent. And part of growing up is when you start to see them as people. And while their parents, any generalised position that you are assigned, uh, requires a kind of perfection, which you're just being a person doesn't do and I think that you can't start forgiving or seeing your parents clearly until they become people for you and it took me a long time for, for that to happen longer than it should have Elizabeth Jane Howard your father was much more accessible to you charming and, and gregarious and and uh, he, he worked in the family timber firm but yes. as you say he remained a boy we're talking about people remaining adolescents he was even farther back <laughs> he remained a boy a dashing glamorous boy you say yes determined yes. to make the best of the holidays the termination go on forever you know he could make any day his birthday what do you remember best about your father well i remember that great sort of joy of pleasure in life that he really did love 
having a good time, and he, and he easily had a good time. So there were a lot of them, and he he liked everybody. He didn't judge people at all, ever. He really liked almost everyone he met. I can't recall any meeting people he didn't like anyway. And he was he was full of a kind of chronic goodwill, but also, I mean, at the time, he, he seemed a very tiring figure, my father, much older and all that, but I realised he really wasn't old at all. He went to the France in the First World War when he was 17, because he lied about his age, and he had four and a bit years there, and I think that's why he came back as a schoolboy. I think it was the only way he could deal with it. They never talked about it, you know, those people, much. They only began talking about the First World War, I would say about 15 years ago, really, when they started to... Actually, people one knew produced personal experience. I'm not talking about people like Wilfred Owen or Sassoon or somebody. I mean, just the ordinary person who went out there, the awful things they had to do and endure and see, they just never got over it any of them, I don't think. And now, you know, they would all be counselled and people would be taking a lot of trouble about their mental state. Those days, if you had a mental state, you were loony and nobody wanted to know you. So, of course, you, 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 didn't, you weren't like that. You pretended you were just like everybody else. I don't think those people were. And I think he was, he was like a schoolboy and it was the holidays. And he behaved like that all the time. He just enjoyed all his life. And it was very enjoyable being with somebody like that. He was very... He had a very good sense of humour. They both had that, my parents. That's the only thing they had in common. They could laugh at things very much, and I used to enjoy that too. You say that your father was, uh, you know, was, was very affectionate, easy, and demanding. Mm-hmm. And then, you, in, in your book, you write, "Until without warning, he ceased to be any of these things." Yes. Well, again, you see, I think one has to use some hindsight. But I found that I think I said in the book that I had to use hindsight, really. Because he suddenly saw me not simply as a little girl, his daughter, but as a sexual person. And he responded in that way instantly. It was part of his affectionate nature, I think. I, and it was irresponsible. But I, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think he had the faintest idea of, of the consequences of what he was doing. And to many people, it wouldn't seem very much. But it was enough for me to spend a lot of my, the rest of my late childhood, trying to avoid being alone with him. I mean, it wasn't he, he, it wasn't total abuse, but it was abuse, enough of abuse to make have a profound effect on me anyway, because it felt like a kind of horrible betrayal. I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it at all, and I couldn't feel the same about him, and really, at, at all, until he was dying, I couldn't, I couldn't get out of that. And then I remember that I loved him very much. You say that you felt that his behaviour was irresponsible and selfish, but not mm. wicked. Yes. How were you able to come to that? Well, I, I really come to that with my hindsight, really. I mean, I think at the time, as I say, he wasn't a person at all. He was my father, whom I trusted, who suddenly turned on me. And, and that was horrifying and very frightening. And I didn't understand it, which is another thing which made it very difficult to deal with. Well, I, I, I think now that he was a boy and he was irresponsible, and I'm sure that all through that he was he was very devoted to me, and if somebody had said, you know, this is a very bad thing to do to people that age, and particularly our own daughter, I think he would have, he would have said, oh God, is it? Oh my God, I didn't know that, you know, and, and I've changed. <laughs> but, but that didn't happen, you know. Uh, people didn't talk about things much in those days. A lot of things were just never discussed at all. It was hard to imagine the sort of double life that people had between what actually happened to them or what they what they were like when they were alone together and how their public persona was expressed. This was something else that uh, percolated through in, in, in your fiction because in, in, the, in the light years, the, uh, the first mm. of the Castlet Chronicle, yes. Edward makes incestuous advances towards his daughter. Yes, well, I did, that was really, uh, I couldn't acknowledge this for a very, very long time. I, I mean, it took me a very long time to be able to think about it, even, and face up to it. And that was really when I did do that, when I wrote The Light Years. I wanted, suddenly wanted to write that. And I could do it without absolutely feeling terrible about Edward, you know. 
which was important to me. I mean, I didn't, I, I was very fond of my father, and, and he, I did mind when he died very much, and um, I knew that he, that was very difficult for him, that he didn't in the least want to die, and he had a painful and horrible time, and so I could see, I could go back to the kind of love I'd had for him as a child then, and once I could do that, then I could write about the other thing, but it took a long time. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's any good saying that any any incident, it's perfectly possible to make uh, crossing the road and being knocked over by a bicycle so traumatic for you the whole rest of your life is never the same. I mean, there's there's no end to the things that you could fabricate for altering your behaviour, your nature, your subsequent movements. And I think it isn't like that. It's a much more um, crustacean business, like sticking a little bit onto something and building up your nature, your personality. And so none of these things, you, you, you can decide how much they're going to affect you in the long run. You can take charge of that. You have to see what they are, see them for what, what they are, and, and not try to pretend they're something else. Um, and then you, you, you can deal with them. And I think that's what we all have to do, and what most people do do. One of the things that I think you, you alluded to earlier in terms of your mother's instilling in you, in, in terms of the insecurity, but was also the, this idea that you were plain and clumsy, and there's yes. a, a sort of paradox here because of your, your relationship to your own appearance and how others related to it. Yes, it was very, I think that was very silly of her. I, mean, I know my, when my daughter wore a paper hat out of a cracker for three weeks and I had to keep mending it with sellotape because she wore it in bed and in the bath. And Eventually, when it was really on its last legs, I said, why do you wear this hat? And she said simply, because I look so awfully pretty in it. So I said, <laughs> well, I, I do see the point of that. And I mended it again. But you see, if I had said that... If I'd thought of saying anything like that, I would have been slammed down. Not just me, the whole Howard family. You weren't allowed to be good-looking, intelligent, good at anything. You could say other people were, and they instantly disclaimed it. But if as a child you said, look at all this knitting I've done, they'd say, you know, shut up, you shouldn't talk like that. You know, it's not very much. Lots of people have done much more than you. And so, so you, that's how it was. And I don't know why they inculcated the plainness so firmly, but they certainly did. I mean, about a month before I met Peter Scott, my first husband, I remember looking in the mirror and saying, you're so plain that you'll have to have a profession, you'll have to think of something that you want to do. Well, I had got something I wanted to do, so that was all right. But you see, that's how I put it to myself. I wouldn't put it that way now. Then, be all and end all, that you should marry some nice man and have his children. If you didn't do that, you were a bit of a failure. Now this is not how people think of their lives at all. But it's it's ironic because then it was, in fact, as you got older, it was your striking beauty that that drew people to you. And 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 if anything, it was both difficult for you to accept that kind of attention and 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 to it trust water. it and and then with reason not to trust it. You know, I didn't trust it at all. It's water off a duck's back if I was lucky and distrust if I was unlucky about the person, really. I, I just didn't... I mean, I really... It's very difficult. I look at pictures of myself young now, I think, goodness, I might have enjoyed being looking like that. <laughs> I wish I had got something out of it at the time, but I, I didn't. And uh, at the time, I didn't conform to my idea of beauty at all, so I didn't see myself. I saw it as a sort of way of people making up to one, really. I thought intelligence was more important than beauty, and anyway, I didn't, um, I didn't agree with that I was beautiful. And yet, it, it was your beauty that, among other things, attracted the attention of of your first husband, Peter Scott. I mean, you, you were you were only nineteen when you married him. He was thirteen years older than you. Yes, I was sixteen when I met him, and um, of course, I, I mean, he, he was very much urged to procreate because of the war. And I think we would not have married at all if there hadn't been a war. That's really what's... I mean, I'm glad we did because I've got Nicola, but I... Your, your daughter, uh, yeah. Yes, but I, I I, think otherwise it was a was rather doomed to disaster. As so many wartime marriages were, of course. It's very difficult to be married to somebody who is, every time you say goodbye to them, is probably going to be the last because he was in a job where officers were killed. Officers and coxswains were killed. 
more than able seamen you know, in that job. It's rather like you know, being a rear gunner. You know, there are certain positions that you can be in which are more hazardous than others, and he was in one of them. And so I, I really thought that we weren't going to have a future together anyway. And we didn't have a home. We were moving around all the time. And I didn't see very much of him. So it wasn't much of a start to a marriage, even supposing it had been a good choice. I think we would have... Both of us had to be rather more mature than we were to have withstood those disadvantages. Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Your first novel, The Beautiful Visit, was published in 1950 when, when you were not quite 26. And I'd like to quote from some of the reviews because they, 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 in a sense, they, they apply to so much of your work since. I mean, it, one review says, delicately introspective and vividly photographic, a cool, quiet stream of a story that is well worth following, a compassionate and exquisitely observed picture of a young girl, that you write about your heroine without falsity or sentimentality at each stage, not from the outside, but as she was then. Uh, Antonia White said it was true imagination and a kind of sensuous power. And and on it goes. I mean, you're, you're this scrupulous eye, eye for detail, the perceptive observations on, on human nature and relationships it, is all there. I mean, it, were you surprised by, by your own voice, your own gifts as a writer right at the beginning? Well, this is this is 1950, you know. Yes, I know. But I started that novel when I was 20, I think, and it started as a story. I mean, it was a very shapeless book. I don't think I'm very proud of it. I, I was sort of learning, trying to learn how to. I had no idea about bone structure of a novel. I had to learn that. Um, it was just writing because I wanted to write, really. And uh, I always think the detail is of enormous importance. I I, I think almost everything you learn is that generalities are, are usually tremendously yawn-worthy, aren't they? I mean, it's why why poetry is so um, telling, is that it hits the nail on the head with one blow, with exactly the right word, so that you rarely see what you're meant to be seeing. So I've always believed in that, but I'm not a poet. I can't do it like that. I think it was a, 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 a good try at for that first novel, but I wouldn't put it any higher than that. And when you read those pieces, I'm simply amazed. <laughs> I really don't remember. I don't think they were all being just being kind, though. I mean, we have the TLS and the New York Times. And <laughs> yes, it was very nice because it made me feel I was a writer. You know, getting published and getting reviews, I felt this has grown up. But part of what draws the reader in your fiction. I think is the way you, you, your characters themselves seem caught in this slips, in a, in, a, in a slipstream, as you, as you put it. I mean, it, mm-hmm. that these women, for the most part, are, are working but not always succeeding at at, uh, at well at getting it right. To borrow the title <laughs> of one of your other novels, your fiction mm-hmm. feels very personal in that sense. I mean, is it? It probably is. I think it's awfully difficult. I think most writers, nearly all writers, are dredging up out of themselves past experience. Also, I mean, experience includes acute perception of other people, not just what you have happened to have gone through. But, And I was brought up at home with my mother's friends, my father's friends, rather, who were all you know, their age and therefore tremendously old. And I used to listen to these conversations and, and look at them and wonder about their relationships and realise that many of them were not as they seemed, that kind of thing. So I suppose I learned it, learned that in that way, but... I think, I, I think they probably are rather personal novels. I, I sometimes do have a theme which I want to explore, but they, that doesn't stop them being personal in the long run. I think they may well be that. Is, is it satisfying or, or, or even unsettling to find bits of yourself reflected? in? in, in I don't in think I noticed that so much at the time. I mean, I, there's certain things... When, I'm sure you have this, certain things that you will never forget, the way somebody looks at you or a short piece of a duologue between two people um, and the atmosphere that was with it. Those sort of things absolutely stay with me. It was I was able to write Slipstream because I never kept a diary or notebooks of any kind. It's those sort of memories. And 
I do, yes, I do use them. But I like also making people up. I mean, a lot of people in my novels are entirely fabricated. Elizabeth Jane Howard, the, the Cazalet Chronicle, your very successful series of four novels, The Light Years, Marking Time, Confusion, and Casting Off, what was a bit of a departure for you. I mean, the story of three generations of the Cazalet family covering the period from 1937 to 1947 started off as a trilogy, grew into four. Mm. It's been described as a, as a minutely recorded social and personal history. You said that you wanted to tell the story of wartime on the home front and, and how Britain changed domestically before and after the war. Yes. And it, it's, it's, it's certainly, it's the story of your own generation, but what did you want to understand through the story of the Cazalets? Well, I, I wanted to explore how Britain did change because it, it changed dramatically and, and, and mostly people didn't at the time sort of recognise this because the war was in the foreground all the time, you know, what, what was going on on battlefields or in the air or wherever uh, was what people talked about or listened to the news for. And underneath or alongside this, houses were closing, people were doing different jobs, women like my mother who'd lived in a kind of enforced idleness were cooking all the meals for the first time in their lives and very good for them, I think. But many people were having very hard lives. That's what I wanted to do, and I probably didn't do it very well. I didn't, um, I didn't altogether uncover how different it was, how tired and shabby and exhausted everybody was in some ways, and how naive and excited and, well, touchingly hopeful people were in other ways. I mean, it was a very strange time. I would have needed to write another book for that, I think. I, I just was getting to the end of the war on this one, but... The 50s were very disillusioning times for people, I think. Because they had sacrificed so much to get yes. to that place and then yes, it they didn't deliver so or much and, and they were so tired and food rationing got worse, not better after the war. You know, I mean, bread wasn't rationed in England until after the war. And this was because the Germans would have starved if we hadn't sent them a lot of wheat, which you in America were prepared for us to have. So that was one thing. I think people were... People didn't know how, you know, you don't know how tired you are until whatever it is you got tired about is over, I think. If you had some ordeal. But, you know, people, I used to broadcast at night a lot of the war, and I used to come off shift in the morning at six in the morning, and the underground would have all these people lying on the platform on pieces of newspaper, women with their hair in curlers and, and the men wearing their boots, and every two minutes, this dark brown blast of air would go through and a train would go through. And I realised, because I did this every day on my shifts, that the people slept in the same place that they'd got this bit of the platform was theirs. Well, then they would go to work, you know, and it sounds sort of well, faintly romantic and exciting, but, you know, weeks and months of that is is no fun. and You, 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 not, you never get enough sleep. You're really not, not very well fed. You're perpetually cold because you can't keep a house warm. You can't get the fuel for it. And uh, the British have never been very good about things like um, central heating or... I mean, they wouldn't have got the oil for it if they had been, or the gas. So you were, you were cold, you were very tired, you were sometimes frightened, and you were ill-fed. And this had gone on for rather a long time. And I think when it sort of eased off and you knew there weren't going to be any more bombs you suddenly realised how exhausted you were. It was a general nationwide exhaustion, which took a long time to recover from. When, when you describe your own experience of the war, you describe a lot of what you're just saying now, but what you don't mention is, is actually fear. Yeah. Yes, I, I, I felt frightened for Peter a lot of the time. I, I think probably I was too young, you know, to be really frightened. I was frightened as a child by the reading these war anthologies about people being... I thought we were all going to be gassed, you know, instantly, and I was particularly worried because they didn't make gas masks for cats, and I was very fond of my cat, and uh, I saw devastation from that point of view, but then it didn't happen. I stopped feeling frightened about it, really, and I, I don't remember... I mean, I remember being in London during the Blitz and, you know, being in a... I remember an underground restaurant in Piccadilly when St James's Church was bits and everything rocked, you know, and bits of ceiling fell down and 
and everybody just had another drink and went on dancing. And I don't think we were particularly... I mean, just, we just felt cross with Hitler by then, you know. <laughs> sort of a blast him, really. Um, a certain amount of that. And, and I also thought... I remember having a lunch in Swiss Cottage. I don't think I did write about this. And I was with a, a naval friend of my husband's and we were having a rather ghastly little rationed lunch and a bomb fell and everybody in the restaurant got crawled under the table. So they were quite sort of large and you know, huge bottoms protruding from these rocking little tables. And I felt this was in for dig, and if one was British, one simply sat in one seat, one didn't move at all. <laughs> and, and my, my naval friend clearly felt the same. We looked at each other, and the rest of the whole room was, was a sea of bottoms. <laughs> I don't know what they thought it would do for them. Really. It wasn't going to help them much. I mean, I don't think... I, I'm not known for my courage, so please don't let's uh, uh, chat that up much. Elizabeth Jane Howard, in, in your account of your love life through through many affairs and your three marriages, there is that sense of of being caught in the in, in the slipstream. And and throughout the memoir, you you reveal your despair about your failure to establish a secure, loving relationship. You say, "I thought I was cut out to be just a kind of extra for people." Yes. But it's also as if you felt you had to to at least try or follow any romantic opportunity that. that that came along. Not any, I know, but because you're like, <laughs> you don't tell us about the things you necessarily, no, the ones, no. the places you didn't go or the people I, I you didn't go yeah. with. But I think, for instance, with the novelist Romain Gary uh, mm-hmm. declared he loved you and you said, you thought, well, maybe somebody would come along and if I didn't give this a try, I wouldn't, if I didn't have the courage to try it or or, or, or with Cecil Day-Lewis, uh, that you, I wasn't able then, you say, to recognize that such things need not happen if they're resisted. I thought that mm. they simply struck one like lightning and that yes. one had no choice. Yes. Well, I, I think if I wasn't struck by lightning by Gary at all, I was amazed at his proposal because it came so much out of the blue. But I thought the reasoning went for me was, you say you want this to happen to you and then there it happens and you say you, don't, you aren't even going to try it. So do you really want it? I mean, what are you on about? And I thought, well, I do really want it, and therefore I should try this. And I, in the same way that I said I wouldn't marry Arthur Kirsten, I'd go and live with him for three months, I said I would go to Paris for a week with, with Roma and see how we got on. I mean, but both, those were both two of the more sensible decisions I came to in my life, I want to say, <laughs> quickly. <laughs> uh, I, I think I... I think a lot of people don't try things, and I, my instinct, if I'm afraid of something, or it's, I feel that I should get over that, and the only way I'll get over it is by doing it, you know. So very often I've done things which I've been afraid of doing, because I've been afraid of doing them, and I don't see that as a particularly good reason. It's rather a grey area, isn't it? Because it's very easy to argue in either direction about that. Anyway, that's what I did a lot of the time. Elizabeth Jane Howard, it was while organizing the Cheltenham Literary Festival in 1962 that you met Kingsley Amos. He, he was added to a panel that you had already organized on, on sex and literature with Joseph Heller, Carson McCullers, and Romain Gary. What started as uh, as what seemed to be initially a, qu- a quick affair turned into an 18-year relationship that was happy at first and then, and then less so. Mm. Much has been said and written about this 15-year marriage in Kingsley Amos's biography, in letters, in his son Martin Amos's memoir, Experience. Yes. Has that intimate exposure been difficult for you? Not, certainly not Martin's book, and I didn't like Eric Jacobs' book, but there it was. I think I found it difficult when Kingsley went about saying what a bad thing it was that he'd ever met me. I felt that was, that was sad, that he felt he had to do that. I mean, what newspapers say about one is up to them, really. I think you know yourself what a situation is, and I had to leave. I just had to leave. And people always think that if you've chosen to do that, you know, why should you be sad? They don't recognise that sometimes you have to choose between two very painful things. It's not just simply choosing between black and white, you know. So it's it's been a hard time. And in a way, it was, I felt... I wanted to write my own account of us, just said it for the record, really. There's, there's not a lot of rancor at all in, in your account. No, I don't feel that. I didn't feel as he did, you see. It feels very differently. 
Uh, I felt very sad about it. And sometimes during you know, the end of the time, I used to feel very angry about it as well, all kinds of things. But, I mean, basically now I just feel, I feel sad about it. And I don't think there was anything that I could have done which would have changed things. I think that's where it gets very tricky. If, if you do feel that, people have very unreal ideas of what their powers are or might have been about something. It does take two people to do most things, and you can't be responsible for a whole situation with another person, particularly not that. It's two people's responsibility. So I don't feel... I don't feel bitterly in the wrong about it. You said that the most difficult decision of your life was to leave Kingsley Amos when you were 56. Why did yeah. you feel you had to? I felt I had to because I felt that it was actually improper to live with somebody who disliked you. I could live with somebody who didn't love me, but I really couldn't live with somebody who disliked me. And it became clear to me that he did. He depended on me in a way, but he also very much disliked me. And I was withering under it. I was just not able to function at all. And I realised that, you know, like I think a lot of people must have done in their day, with who lives with somebody who's, who drinks too much, that they could either they've got a go or they must join them. And I simply couldn't face joining him in that way. I, I can't work if I drink too much and I don't enjoy the... I, I love drink, but I don't want to get drunk all the time. And it doesn't suit me. And that's what it would have been. So I really had to go. And I was frightened because I was, I, I hadn't contemplated spending the rest of my life alone, which I'm doing. And I was simply terrified of being alone. So uh, I was also terrified of, I, was, I wouldn't be able to earn my living. But I certainly hadn't earned my living by being a novelist up till then. So it was all quite frightening. You describe uh, happy times that you shared and, and uh, the extended family, the big household, and, and uh, yes. the, the stability that did arise for a time. How do you think you were most affected or most changed by your marriage to Kingsley Amos? What a difficult question. Well, I had an experience of a, of a marriage which I don't think I'd had till then. I think that changes you, that the, the chronic intimacy, you know, the being with somebody all the time in all kinds of climates of feeling and what's going on. I had that. We had a very good working relationship about writing. Yeah, it um, sounds like it. I mean, you were, you were yes. able to work in, in close proximity and read each other's... Well, even we each yeah. wrote a bit of each other's novels once. Yes. And that was, that was in fun to do. Um, what did I get? I mean, I got... Well, I enjoyed the large household. I realised when I was alone that one of the things I'd been brought up in a household with a lot of people, that I was used to it. It wasn't I wanted to be with them all the time, but I wanted them to be around. And I still find it very difficult to live alone, but um, that's my lot now, and I'm getting much better at it, I'm glad to say. Your most recent novel, Falling, draws on events from this life, this new yes. life, and, and the old house in the country, and and in and that is a last stab at trying not to be lonely. Exactly, <laughs> a relationship with a man who turns out to be other than what he seems. Yes, he certainly was. A very sinister character. Dead now, I'm glad to say. Oh, is that right? Because mm. uh, I, I was reading somewhere that when the, when you're, the, when Falling was published, that um, he sent you a postcard saying he's mm. kind of has, have started new adventure, which I thought was mm. remarkable because the way your novel ends yes. is exactly in that with the lady on the train, with the see, lady yes. with 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 the, with the, the <laughs> this con man, this villain, uh, this sedu yes. seducer trying to con mm. someone else. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I think technically it's my probably my best novel from the craft point of view. It's quite enclosed and taut. I, I mean, it was, I really wanted to write it. I, I enjoyed writing it actually. Was there a kind of triumph in? in, in well, I didn't want. I, I mean, I haven't. I've, it is a novel. I haven't precisely described this person whom I knew. I mean, it, a lot of things are the same, but and, and the, the general direction of things is the same. But I, I was able to make what I wanted of it. I, and so, some of his past was more murky than I, I've described in my book, actually. But a friend writer who lives near me, called Louis de Bernier, said, well, at least you've got a novel out of it. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's quite true, that's what happened. And it somehow made the whole thing the right size.
How did you find out that he died? Your your man. I was told by his ex-wife, with whom I'd formed some alliance, and she was very very um, nice and touching about it. She kept saying, uh, "Are you all right, Jane? Are you all right?" And I said, I'm perfectly all right. In fact, I feel the most enormous relief. I've never felt relieved about someone's death before in my life, but I did about that. And so should she, really, because he conned her also into... He got half her pension, so she could never stop working. Now she'll get her whole pension and will be able to, which is good. You say that getting old is a classic slipstream situation in, mm-hmm. in, in your memory. You say one of the good things about living longer is we have more time to learn how to be old. Yes. And that inside the conspiracy of silence about age, there is the possibility of art. Does aging really uh, really inspire you? How, how, how does aging inspire you? Well, I think you? it does. I think it's a challenge. I mean, there you are, or, or whatever, you know, bits of you failing or crumbling, getting, getting more and more like a fourth bridge, you know, the maintenance is falling as one gets older. Uh, what can you do except make some, make something of it? I mean, because it's it's inevitable, it's happening to you. And uh, I spent about 18 months, I suppose, bitterly minding it and, and feeling very sorry for myself about it and hating the pain from arthritis and, you know, asthma and things like that. And I, um, but it's what I've got now. And you know, what, what, what could I do with that? And, and I, I'm finding it quite interesting to see what I can do with it. It makes one notice other people who've had difficult things much more, I think. And it's a very good way of learning not to be irritable. I'm a very irritable person. I'm not going to go into the hot, the hot temper mode. I'm just plain irritable and impatient. And I get more like that when I'm in pain. And so that's an exercise one can do all the time. So by the time I'm 100, I hope I'll be truly marvellous. <laughs> I'm sure you will. <laughs> Thank it's you. very unlikely. <laughs> mm. Anyway, I'm so, I'm, I'm so glad to have had the chance to talk to you. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Elizabeth Jane Howard in London in 2003. She died 10 years ago. She was 90. Her memoir, Slipstream, is available in paperback from Macmillan. The fifth and final volume of her Castlet Chronicles, All Change, was published in 2013, a year before her death. Today's show was produced by senior producer Sandra Rabinovich. Katie Swales is also producer. Melissa Gismondi is associate producer. Technical operations by Kira Mahoney. I'm Eleanor Wachtel. Next week, celebrating a classic that's one of the most translated books in the world, Le Petit Prince or The Little Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. Three enthusiasts on how it changed their lives. That's next week. I hope you'll join me. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.